pause for a word of prayer before we begin. Father, we just bow before you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your, your love, your mercy, your strength, all of which, Father, we have to take for granted each day. Lord, your mercies are indeed new every morning. We know that each day is a gift. Lord, not to be spurned or wasted or live for ourselves, but for you. Because we know as has been shared, we have been bought with a price. And Lord, you came to this earth to redeem us, to save us from ourselves, to change us and make us into something that is useful, something, Lord, that proclaims your name here on this earth. Father, someone that glorifies you through our thoughts, our words, and our actions. We thank you for your work in us, and we pray that you will not leave us where we're at, and that you will take us on to a deeper knowing of who you are, of your character, Lord, of your love, and also of your holiness. We thank you, Lord, for your chastening hand in our lives. For we know, Father, that you chasten in love. We just want to bless you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, I uh, wanted to have this message for young believers. Um, just some of the experiences that I had as a young believer. And I'm sure the older ones here will also be able to glean something from it. I guess I was in Fort Pitt as well. Um, even though I didn't get to sit in on all the meetings, I know I was there Thursday night and experienced this wonderful moving of God. And uh, this time of just praising God together for his goodness and his faithfulness. I loved seeing the surrendering and giving of young hearts to Christ, recommitting. And it's truly, <clears throat> it's what you pray for. It's what you hope for and it's what you work for. And that moment of knowing that your name is written down in the book of life is very precious. And if you can just imagine that, God writing your name down in the book of life, that is a precious thing. And knowing that your former sins are passed away to be remembered no more. It reminds me of, those times remind me like of Matthew 17, where it says, And after six days, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun. raiment was white as the light, and behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, 
it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. And this phrase, Lord, it is good for us to be here. It is. Being and coming into a place where the Holy Spirit's presence is, is indeed wonderful and joyous. We kind of feel like Peter did when he experienced the glory and presence of God on this mountain. It is good for us to be here. We just want to bask in that presence because for a moment it seems like a bit of a taste of heaven. For a moment it seems like there are no more, there are no troubles anymore. And there is something so sweet about that first love, that feeling of being washed clean, that joy when you realize that Jesus fully accepts you as his son and daughter, that feeling of everything looking different and new. It's kind of like being born again, you know. And I do know that not all experiences are the same. And they don't have to be. It is just as recognition that I'm finished. You know, I can't live this way anymore. I need a savior. And that's where I came to. Is that conviction, that realization that what am I doing? I'm wasting my life on these frivolous things that Brother Richard spoke about. Then Christ now dwells within us. He gives us a piece of himself, literally, within us. It says, I'm crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in faith, the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And that's the thing. Christ now lives within us. He, he gave us a piece of himself, his very nature. And that is why when Saul was on the way to Damascus, if you remember, he fell off the horse or whatever he was riding. Christ spoke to him and said, Saul, are you persecuting me? Because Saul was touching Christ himself. The Christ within all of those men and women Going on, know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have from God, and ye are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Glorify God, therefore, in your body. That's 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. So <clears throat> I do want to say in the beginning, young people, that 
enjoy this taste of heaven that God has given you. Enjoy this joy and freedom that you feel. I think it's a precious gift. It is a taste of heaven. That freedom and joy that you feel, that feeling of being washed and cleansed and forgiven. I kind of always feel a little miffed when older couples sit down, you know, like with courting couples, and use this line when the honeymoon is over. Um, I feel a lot of time we're trying to justify something in our own hearts, maybe. And I'm guilty of it, too. I've probably used it as well. But I've tried to think of what we're actually trying to say. Um, I think what we're actually trying to say is enjoy this time together. Enjoy your honeymoon, but expect changes and challenges to occur in the future. But here's the thing. God made stages of life. If you look at the stage of man, you know that he starts out life as a baby, then as a child, then as a young adult or a teenager, an older adult, and then as an adult, and then the oldest adult of grandpas and grandmas. And as you look at that, we can see God's wisdom. We can see that each stage is beautiful. In each stage of life, something different happens to us. We experience many different aspects of life. Joys and challenges alike intertwine to form and make us into a unique person. A marriage is the same way. Each stage is different. But you have to understand that they all bring with it something equally precious in its own right and time. And if you think about it, each stage is equally precious. A child brings a very different aspect to marriage. And the bond of love and trust grows into something deeper through our varied experiences in our interactions with one another. And I feel that's what we're trying to say. Changes will come, but hopefully those changes will be seen through light lenses and that those early feelings of love will morph into something equally as precious and real. And that's where I've come to, basically. That each stage of life is precious. And it does not mean that something diminishes. And, well, it kind of does. But it means that it grows into something that is equally as precious. Because if, if you look around, if you ask your wife or if I ask... Um, married couples here, if they love their wives, will say, yes, 
They loved them, maybe even more than they did when they got married, which basically means that they know each other better. They trust each other in a deeper way. And in that way, that love has has grown. So a new Christian cannot help but feel that overwhelming sense of joy and freedom. And they should. But like what was mentioned, you have now entered the gate and you have signed up for spiritual warfare. The enemy has lost one of his own. Allegiances have switched. And we know that the devil will not take that lightly. And from my experience, I do think we can help ourselves out with some things of not falling into the traps of the enemy, spending years struggling, trying to overcome. Once we have made the discovery of the fact that we are the dwelling place of God, then a full surrender of ourselves to God must follow. When we see that we are the temple of God, we shall immediately recognize that we are not our own. Consecration will follow revelation. The difference between victorious Christians and defeated ones is not that some have the Spirit while others do not, but that some know his indwelling and others do not, and that consequently some recognize the divine ownership of their lives while others are still their own masters. Revelation is the first step to holiness, and consecration is the second. A day must be in our lives as definite as the day of our conversion, when we must give up all right to ourselves and submit to the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. There may be a practical issue raised by God to test the reality of our consecration, but whether that be so or not, there must be a day when without reservation we surrender everything to him. I think this this author here said it really well, but I agree with it. And that's my first point I want to focus on, is hitting the ground running. And that's the first question to new believers. Have you truly, have you truly surrendered everything? Have you laid everything on that altar? And I mean everything. I don't care how dear it was to you, and how much time it consumed, in your life. I don't care how much you think you can handle handle it or not, or that it's not a problem in your life. That doesn't matter. And a lot of times I know in my own life it is simply lies of the enemy. Even in the times of my conviction, the devil was lying while you lose all your friends. We won't get to do this anymore. And they were all lies, which I found out very quickly. And from the testimonies that I hear from people that totally surrendered and let go of every little vice in their lives, they all come away with the same saying, I wish I would have done this sooner. He says in Hebrews 12, 1, 
Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So as Brother Richard mentioned, generally, when runners run in a race, they do not carry along a lot of baggage. You normally don't see people running a race with backpacks simply because it hinders their running. If you've ever seen men and women running in races, especially if, uh, if you've ever watched it online, you immediately notice one thing. They don't have a lot of clothing on. And absolutely no extras. You also notice that their clothing and shoes have been specifically designed and fitted to aid their performance. They are also meticulous and careful in their training not to overburden themselves with food, and in every way to remove what would be an impediment or hindrance. What is important to note is that they don't shed their possessions as they run. They have let them go already before they begin the race. And as applied to Christians, it means that we should remove all which would obstruct our progress in the Christian course. Thus, it is fair to apply it to whatever would be a hindrance in our efforts to win that crown of life. And it's not just vices. It is letting go of bitterness, of pride, vanity, anger, all of these other, other things as well. And the sin which doth so easily beset us. The sin which doth so easily beset us. And in my own experience, I know the enemy will come back with the things that were most dearest to you before you were converted. Just remember that. Those in which we freely indulged before we became Christians, they will be likely to return with power. And we are far more likely, because of the laws of association, to fall into them than into any other. I do do believe Satan tries to get us to take the bait again concerning our former sins, just to see if we'll give in and take it. Every man has one or more weak points in his character, and it is there that he is particularly likely to be exposed by the enemy. Maybe think for an analogy about a length of PVC pipe. Generally, if you bend a PVC pipe too far, you get an area that will be weak and compromised. It is in that area of weakness that you will need to guard and protect the most. And if the pipe will ever burst, it will be at that point of weakness. And that is the point where Satan will focus in on the most. And again, speaking for myself, I do know 
that once Christ frees you from something and you take a bite of that thing again, it seems for some reason it's not as easy to get rid of. It's, I remember speaking to a brother about something uh, that uh, a young man had shared with me that he fell into again. And his brother said, from my experience, this is going to be a years-long battle for this person. And I know what he's saying. I've experienced it in my life. It seems like God gives us the grace that we need to resist up until the point of that, that bite. And then takes us farther than we want to go. And of course, the tactic is to make us ineffective. Get us to indulge in these things again so that we are simply ineffective in the work of the kingdom and unprepared when spiritual needs come our way. Because I've noticed in my life that when I'm in a situation where you need to share something or encourage someone, the first thing that pops up is the enemy bringing to mind those vices in your life. And I remember also one time walking into a newly converted guy's bedroom one time. I saw that there was a Game Boy on the bed and a Bible on the nightstand. And I felt, I'm sorry, in my mind, trying to serve two masters. And that's what it boils down to, trying to serve two masters. And it doesn't normally have a good outcome. It's, uh, it's today, choose today whom you will serve. We're either hot or we're cold. But for some reason and for some people, God deals so decisively with some vices in their lives that they have an actual aversion and hatred towards them after their conversion, a complete severing. But for others, it seems like a little more complex a more difficult journey. Um, I feel it's very important for early Christians to be distraction-free. If I look at my own conversion, distraction-free is a big thing. The weeds have been dealt with. Now feed that new life plenty of nutrients. It's a precious time of learning to hear Christ's voice. Learn to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's promptings and leading. Allowing brothers and sisters to speak encouragements into your life. And it's like one of the sisters shared here recently. Put on the armor of God and protect that new life within you. Because we know the enemy wants to come and snatch it away. And uh, 
It's just this necessary. It's just so necessary as a young believer to just take a time of completely being distraction-free. Now, I think, I mean, you can kind of take it overboard. I remember one brother telling me, hey, I remember a brother telling me, was watching my life, you know, and he was saying, hey, you don't have to stop um, living. And which means I, I cut out like all sporting events or everything like that. And um, I knew what he meant. But it was also a precious time of just being in the word. And not thinking, I have to be there. I have to do these things. And I have to uh, um, be um, when there are events and things like that. I have to be there. Because I, I do feel that those times, I just wish, I've often wished, man, I, I wish I could have them back. Those times of just being there alone with Christ, learning to know him. And uh, another point I appreciated, heard from Brother Reuben, is the importance of righting your wrongs. If you have hurt someone or sinned against someone, go and make it right. Even if it means something, even if it means in front of the whole church. And for me, it's not that um, initially you do that, but I felt that as time goes and I went on in my in my um, my Christian walk, that Christ gave me more incidents where I knew I had hurt someone and I needed to go correct it. It wasn't like it was all there immediately, but I just remembered things. And, oh, I forgot about this. You know, I forgot about that. And even little things, like, well, they're not little. But um, I remember taking a pack of playing cards from a convenience store. And I, I had to drive there a few hours and walk in and tell them what I did and make it right. And uh, things like that. And... I know if, if, we, if it doesn't come to mind, I, I still feel that Christ forgives us. But there is something in righting your wrongs. It, it is the same way that uh, when Jesus came into Zacchaeus' house, he says here in Luke 19, uh, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone or anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. 
So I feel if the Lord commended Zacchaeus for doing this, and he also commends us for doing it as well. And it might cost you a little more than you realize, or it might be a blessing. And uh, I, do, I do believe that this is a sign of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. And what is the worst thing that can happen if you do this? That God is glorified? That your conscience is cleansed? That you have taken away a foothold from the enemy? Or that relationships were restored and wounds were healed? And from my experience, that is what happened. God was glorified. Your conscience is cleansed. You have taken away a foothold from the enemy, his accusations. And it's not easy to humble yourself and to admit these things, but I feel it's very necessary. And it helped me tremendously. Today, salvation has come to this house. And don't push it off. That's one of the worst things you can do. Because I feel if you push these things off, it is simply we start justifying it and belittling it in our minds that it's not of uh, it's it's really not that much of an importance. I'll get it some other time. So if the Holy Spirit puts it on your heart, ask for His help and go for it. If you excuse things, that just gives room for more excuses. My next point is to prioritize, as Brother Richard shared, that it's okay to prioritize. It's okay to make a rut with some habits, especially as new believers. And I feel that one of those habits should be daily Bible reading. And like Brother Richard said, think of it as an analogy of putting your armor on before you go into battle. If you don't, there might be some unforeseen problems that you are not quite ready to handle. And sure, if you think about the analogy of being a soldier in an army, you can go into battle without armor. It's fine. But it's certainly a lot better if you do have some. Well, it's not fine. Um, it's just a lot better. You're equipped. And in the same way, that daily nourishment equips you with a hidden word in your heart of which you might be surprised or it comes into play throughout the day. And I, I do remember early on as well, I was often very surprised with this strange phenomenon that the things that I read matched up to an event during the day. Or you could say, it seemed like God somehow connected the two together. But your eyes also have to be open to see that. But if you're like me, I found that haphazard reading of Scripture is really not the way to go. I've, I've done that a lot, just haphazard reading of Scripture, but I feel... 
if you've never read the Bible from cover to cover, then you should make it a priority to do so. And I'm working on it, by the way. <laughs> um, and the reason I say this is because we do believe that the whole Bible is inspired and it gives us a complete picture of the character and the essence of God if we read through all of it. So I did, I am using a tool. It's actually an app. It's called uh, Bible Reading Checklist. And uh, if, if, you, if, you want, uh, if you want it later, I can give it to you or show it to you. It's called Bible Reading Checklist, and it tracks your progress. So what I tried to do is read six chapters from three different books of the Bible each day. So for instance... Starting in Genesis, read two chapters of Genesis, and then you go to one of the poetry books of the Bible, like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. You read two books there, two chapters, I mean, and then two chapters of one of the New Testament books. That's six chapters a day. And I've calculated that you need to read two chapters a day to read through the Bible in a year. If you read through two chapters a day, you can read through the Bible a year. So that means if you accidentally skip a day, you won't fall behind. And in this way, it, um, I've, I've, I've liked this method. Two chapters of an Old Testament books, book, two chapters of a poetry book, or prophetic book, and two chapters in the New Testament. So, the Word of God, as I rather shared, it's a, it's a sword. It says in Jude 1, 24-25, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. So he is able to keep you from falling. Take fast hold of instruction. Let her not go. Keep her, for she is thy life. Proverbs 4.13. And this short story illustrates this. It says, in April of 2011 of deadly tornadoes ripped across the state of Alabama, leaving some 250 people dead in its wake. Near Wellington, Alabama, the Hardy family realized the storm was coming too late to find a permanent shelter. They considered trying to take shelter in a metal clubhouse, but it had already been turned on its side by the strong winds. So in desperation, it took shelter in a small stand of trees. They tied a rope around the children and huddled around them in the trees as the storm passed. A family member said that while they had been scratched by flying dirt and debris, none suffered any serious injuries. Imagine how tightly you would cling to the trees and rope in such a situation, knowing that your life or the life of your child might depend on your grip would give you all the motivation you needed to hang on with every ounce of power you could muster. 
So although there are no warning sirens or news alerts, each of us is living in the path of destructive storms. There are temptations and destructive philosophies abounding around us. And if we do not have a secure place of protection, we will be destroyed. But because the word of God is so readily available to us, we often take it for granted rather than treasuring it as the precious resource it is. When you view the Bible as a lifeline designed to keep you safe through the storms of life, you begin to take it more seriously. And that's basically where you have to come to in your mind, that it's a lifeline to protect you against the storms of life. Because it's like Brother Richard shared, how in the world do you want to fight if you don't have a sword in your hand? And prayer is the same way. It's also a consistent habit that should be formed. Having dedicated times of prayer. And uh, I've also seen quick prayers during the day when you come home for coffee breaks. It does a lot to revitalize your spirit. It does a lot. Just entering into your closet or into your room and having a quick prayer especially if it's been a difficult day. And Christ is always there. He's always there. And we have to remember, we don't have because we don't ask. Don't fall into this trap of thinking, well, he won't give it to me anyway. Because I know early on, in my Christian life, you you feel a lot of times that I don't want to bother Christ with this. You know, it's just a small thing; it's insignificant. He has a, he has more things on his mind than this. But it's again a lie. Um, just these times of prayer during the day. They don't have to be long. Again, they do not have to be long prayers. I felt very refreshed during those times. And uh, ask him and thank him for it. Which brings me to the next point. Of God is a powerful weapon and prayer is a powerful weapon that we use against the enemy's lies. Early on, I struggled quite a bit with various different struggles, mainly struggles of my mind, assurance of salvation, and then blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which was a big one. Oh, when I look back at that one, I had times where I, some things in the past came to my mind. And I thought, you know, I had blasphemed the Holy Spirit through this. And it literally made me physically ill to the point of throwing up. And being sick. And 
I, I never really shared it with anyone because I felt, uh, how, how would they help me? You know, this is the unpardonable sin. How would they help me? So I just tried to battle through it myself. And uh, I didn't understand that the enemy comes to kill, to steal, and destroy you. And uh, I listened, I tried to listen to a lot of teachings about this very matter and try to understand what it, what it means. And I'm not saying I have a handle on it, but from what I gathered, one of the best explanations that I, that I know is it's someone that repeatedly hardens their heart against the Holy Spirit day after day after day, for that person, there is no forgiveness. There is no forgiveness for that person. It's the hardening of a heart day after day after day. So we have to... Conviction and condemnation, know the difference between them. Conviction and condemnation. Um, Condemnation is usually hazy. It feels hateful and hopeless. And uh, Satan often brings feelings of condemnation that are vague. We We can simply feel like something is wrong with me. Adam and Eve knew something was wrong in the garden after they sinned, and they immediately sought to cover themselves up. Satan can subtly make Christians feel the same way. He can fill us with a kind of a low-grade fever of ongoing shame that we can't exactly pinpoint. So we primarily feel this haziness when it comes to what we should do with our grief. Condemnation doesn't point us to Christ and the gospel, Rather, it just keeps pointing us back to ourselves and to our sin. We feel strongly that something must change, but we have no helpful ideas about what to do. Adam and Eve were helpless and clueless, hiding in the garden until God pursued them and called them to repentance. So, condemnation. Satan can't steal your salvation, but he'll steal your joy. He will hurt you, not help you, burden you, not bless you. Condemnation is like spiritual waterboarding, where Satan tries to smother any glimpse of God's goodness and love for you. He's trying to drown you in your sins. It makes you feel hopeless. It makes us think, I'm a lost cause. I'll be chained to my sins forever. I'll never change. God doesn't care about me. He has cast me off eternally. So it's this just this idea that... Something is wrong with me. And it's simply the enemy's attack on you. Conviction is the opposite of condemnation. Conviction is kind of instead of haziness. Condemnation can feel like a cloud of shame hanging over your whole being that you can't even explain. But conviction is usually very specific. Conviction may bring a precise thought to your mind, such as, 
I need to quit watching this, this show that I'm watching. Or conviction is clear enough to give you a path to move toward repentance, as when David's conscience smote him for cutting Saul's robe, which was like an attack on God's anointed. Second, conviction is helpful and loving. God wants the best for you. He convicts to convince you of a better way. He is getting your attention to protect and bless you. It's kind of like you spank your child for running into traffic. My discipline is driven by my delight in him. Praise God for his correction. And conviction is hopeful. It doesn't leave you in the doldrums. It brings an atmosphere that says, trust God, repent, and run to a merciful Savior. Godly grief over sin is a waiting room leading to repentance. Rejoice in it. Christ reminded Peter of his three denials. But the goal was to restore him, not to condemn him. So conviction is always a gift for Christians. So it's good to understand these two. The difference between these two. Conviction and condemnation. I struggled a lot with condemnation. And I figured out that you need to expose the lies. Like out loud, you need to expose the lies. So as soon as the lies are exposed, the enemy has no choice but to leave you because his lies are exposed. And back it up with the promises of Scripture. Read the truths of Scripture out loud to your heart over and over. I've seen this firsthand that exposing the lies of the enemy causes him to flee. And you can look at that with Jesus in the wilderness when the devil came to tempt him. With each temptation, Jesus exposed the lies. With each temptation, he used scripture to expose the lies. And finally, the devil left him. And it's going to be a struggle but again, you cannot wallow in uh, condemnation. You can't stay there. You have to rise up and expose those lies. So the next point is, I'm almost done here, is uh, do not compare your spiritual walk or growth with others around you. Or better said, it's not a good idea to do that. Because again, if you look at the stages of life, a baby must first crawl before he can walk, before you can run. So it's not healthy or helpful to fall into the trap of comparing your spiritual state with that of a seasoned Christian. I think that you have to have what they have immediately, who have been walking with God for years and years already. And babes normally begin life on milk for a reason. It's easy to digest. So don't fall into the trap of thinking that you must now know all the ins and outs of everything that the Bible has to say. Um, going into these deep studies of, of words um, that may confuse you more than anything. And I know... I 
So um, I know people handed me some books, for instance, The Norman Christian Life. I think Jacob, brother Jacob gave it to me when I was free, uh, newly converted. And I started reading it, and it's a simple book, but it was just... I had to put it aside for a time. And now, I know years later I read it, and it was like, wow, this is, this is an amazing book. It's, it's really good. But at the time, it was a little overwhelming because I was so new to everything, it didn't, I couldn't really understand it. So what I'm trying to say is slow but steady is the key. Slow but steady. Ask God to reveal the simple truths and solidify them in your hearts. You must first build a solid foundation, and then you start adding the building blocks of the house. Those foundations of knowing who you are and whose you are. Those, those uh, getting rid of those feelings or those feelings of condemnation and just learning to be a son. What it means to be a son. Walking in obedience, in simple obedience and being faithful in the little things. And in the things that God puts in front of you. And I know even before my conversion, I dreamed of being a, a missionary, of saving souls, you know. And things like that. <clears throat> being a hero. But it's... If I think of the life of Christ and those 30 years that he spent at home with his parents walking and learning obedience, even through the things that he suffered. It's a slow but steady walk. And if you remember Matthew eleven twenty five, and at that time Jesus said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. So, reveal them unto babes. As I think we can, we know who he's talking about. It is people who are humble in their own sight, who are helpless, defenseless, and who feel that there is, within them there is nothing good, and that everything that they have comes from Christ. And my last point is fellowship. It says, let us hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful at promise. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more that you see the day approaching. I also found that these times, especially these, these Bible study groups that we had, young people getting together for Bible study and prayer, group prayer, I still remember those times. They were very precious. And even the prayer meetings we had with other groups. But I also remember coming home, and I had this hunger to come together for worship or prayer, 
uh, gleaning from the from others' insights and experience in their walk with God. But I remember a lot of times leaving group settings and feeling empty because we had just spent another evening speaking of current events or other such conversations. And I guess this is a challenge for the church is to have something meaningful for for the new believers. And I also believe that the temperature of a church, the conversations of the of of our groups is often directly related to our private study of the word and prayer. And I do also know that four spiritual conversations leaving, leave you feeling about equally as unfulfilled because you can sense when someone is not being real, when it is mostly head knowledge instead of speaking from the heart. So the importance of fellowship is that it binds us together as we get to understand that we are all dealing with similar struggles. We are on the same journey. We're on the same road. We serve and worship the same Savior, and the collective sharing of experiences, struggles, and the prayers we pray for one another strengthens each one of us and brings us onto the same plane, which is at the foot of the cross. And that's where we all need to come. I'm not more important, better in God's eyes than anyone here. We're on this journey together. So in closing, 1 Peter 5, verses 6 to 11, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who had called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, or establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, just want to say God bless you. And it is truly a joy, a blessing, to see that Holy Spirit is still moving in our midst. So uh, thank you. God bless you.